We're starting a new sermon series, and it's titled, What's True About You? And uh, as we kick this off, I'm curious, how many of you have either been a, a, a victim of identity theft or know someone who has? Raise them high if you have. Statistically, they estimate that somewhere around 17 million Americans will have some part of their identity stolen from them for financial gain just in this year. That's about 7% of our population. And uh, that has to do with, uh, it's been on the rise for the last 20 years or so as the internet has taken hold and e-commerce has taken uh, its roots and uh, people are doing more and more transactions online, which makes it easier. It's been around for, for actually for hundreds of years where somebody would impersonate another person or, t- or claim their identity for some sort of financial gain. But in the last 20 years, it's gone from impacting uh, very, very few people to, to impacting quite a few people. And uh, the reality is that, um, that every single person who has ever graced the face of this earth has been a victim of identity theft. It goes all the way back to the fall, to the garden, when the snake whispered into the ears of Eve and questioned the identity that Adam and Eve had as perfectly loved children of God. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we move through this series and as we launch this series today. We're going to be talking about what's true about you because we live in a culture and we live in a society. We live in a world that screams at us and most of what it screams at us is not true. Some of it is patently false and it's easy to identify as false and some of it is just a little bit off. And I find that, that, that the half-truth The 95% truth is sometimes more devious and more subtle and more dangerous because it's not easy to immediately recognize it as falsity. And yet, you go 5% off course on your way out of London, headed for New York. You're not going to New York. 5% off course will take you to Virginia. (laughs) You'll You'll be miles and miles from where you want to be. If Satan can just get us a little bit off course... If you can get us to believe something that's 95% true, we're in real danger. And so we're going to talk about what's true about you because Jesus stood up one day and he declared that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He declared that we have the ability to know what is true about us, what is true about our Heavenly Father, what is true about each other. And that when we know that truth, it will set us free. Now, it's interesting because the Gospel of John has a, has a, a special relationship with this idea of truth. Early on in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And I have found as a pastor that, that most people that I interact with in the church world are either on the grace side or they're on the truth side. But to be full of grace and truth, that is Jesus. That is the Jesus that came to us. And then later, he tells his disciples, um, one of the last nights that he spent with them, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And some of the last words that he spoke Right before he took his cross up Calvary, he spoke to Pilate. And Pilate said, what is truth? Very skeptically. I can just hear, I can just hear that the despair. What is truth? And Jesus says, I am truth. I am truth. And so 
you tie that all together, you come to realize that we were made in the image of Jesus Christ. We were made in the image of the triune God. We were made in the image of Jesus who is full of grace and truth. And there is something that is true about you. And that's what we're going to be spending some time talking about today. We're going to look at God's Word, and we're going to look very carefully at God's Word. And and pretty much everything I say to you today is going to be backed up by Scripture because I don't want you to walk off, uh, I don't want to walk off this stage and you walk out this door and say, well, that was Mark's opinion, and that's nice that he thinks those things about me. I, I want you to know that this is what God says is true about you. So usually I will pick one or two passages of Scripture and really nail down on it. Today we're going to have half a dozen or more. And honestly, I left dozens on the table. Uh, really couldn't, uh, couldn't include all of them. But the, the concept is that, that we have been exhorted by Scripture, by the Apostle Paul, when he says, no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks renewing our minds. And some of you maybe know this. Some of you maybe could say, well, I knew all those things, Pastor Mark. And if that's true, then maybe you just need to be reminded. Or maybe there's somebody that you need to to share that with. Somebody that will come to mind that God will lay on your heart as we go through this series. And from a personal standpoint, I can tell you that I was a Christian I was raised in the church, and I was a Christian for well over ten years, and I was even in ministry for seven or eight years before several of these truths really started to take hold in my heart and really started to reform my identity. That the identity theft that had taken place in my life, I had lived with for so long that I just had made some assumptions. And as these truths started to come back into my life and what is truly true about me and what God says is true about me started to take root in me, it started to change the way that I view the world, the way that I view my relationship with God, and the way that I view the people that I am in relationship with. And the idea here really actually came from a series of books that I read a couple of years ago. They were written by a pastor, an author. He's in the education world as well. His name is James Bryan Smith. And maybe you've heard of the Good and Beautiful Trilogy. It's three books that go along with the Sermon on the Mount, one book for each chapter. And he starts with the Good and Beautiful God, moves on to the Good and Beautiful Life, and finishes with the Good and Beautiful Community. And it's a phenomenal series of books. If you're looking for something to read this summer, if you're going on vacation or, or you want to take a book with you, uh, these would be phenomenal books for you to read. And he talks in the second book about the importance of narratives and how so much of the Old Testament is narrative because people were building a collective identity. And narratives are powerful because if you believe a story that is told to you and that is told to you in the context of this is who you are, this is who we are, and this is how people like us behave, then narrative becomes very important. And when we talk about power narratives, we're talking about parts of our story that are formative, that everything else comes out of, parts of our story that are foundational. And so when we talk about power narratives, we're really getting at the idea of seeing as God sees. And when we talk about what's true about you, we're talking about seeing yourself, seeing God, and seeing the world as God sees you, himself, and the world. Because I am of the opinion that all sin is a failure to see as God sees. That all sin comes from from a misunderstanding of who God is, who I am, or who you are. Any sin that I commit comes from one of those three, and sometimes they gang up and, and really cause a ruckus. But when we see as God sees, we'll do as he says. That's why he said it. And he's perfect. He's perfect in all of his ways. 
And so each week we're going to have a bottom line that is one thing that's true about you. And so today I'm going to give it to you early and we're going to go through phrase by phrase and really pick it apart so that you can really understand and take ownership of what is true about you. The bottom line today is that you are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. You are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. Now, there are four chunks to that. The first one is true for every single person in this room, every single person on terra firma here on planet Earth, and every single person that has ever been or will ever be. The next three are conditional. They're conditional upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you're exploring, I just want to make sure you understand that, that the first one is true of everyone, and we'll pick these apart phrase by phrase. The final three presume a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, there's an opportunity for you to receive that today. And if you don't receive it today, you're welcome to come back. You're welcome to explore. This is a safe place to explore Christ. But the first phrase that we want to look at, and go ahead and get your Bibles out, but don't feel like you need to make it to every scripture. Normally, I don't put the scriptures on the screen because I want you reading a Bible in your hand. This week, I put the scriptures on the screen, so don't feel like you've got to run around and get to Malachi and then get over to Jeremiah and then go into the New Testament and go back into the Old Testament. There's a few that I'll list the page numbers if you want to grab one of those pew Bibles or if you want to have a, a Bible that you bring with you, and we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on those. But the first place that we're going to go is in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. And uh, I was reading through the Minor Prophets in the last couple of weeks, and I was absolutely struck by the power of this one phrase, this one verse. It just leapt off the page to me. And I I have a habit of reading the Bible every day and then posting uh, an encouraging scripture on my Facebook uh, page. And I noticed that this one got a lot of traction. It got more likes than normal. It got more comments than normal. It got more shares than normal. And uh, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people like Jesus. Not many people want to share him. Uh, the same is true with uh, posts that, uh, that a lot of times people like it. But when I see people clicking share, I realize, wow, this is really resonating. There's something here. And this phrase is so simple. It's really God opening this, this passage. And he has some tough things to say to the people of Israel in the book of Malachi. But he opens this book by saying, I have always loved you. Before you hear anything else, before, before I have to correct your behavior, before I have to share truth with you, I want you to know that I have always loved you, says the Lord. And so as we look at our bottom line and we look at that first phrase that you are a beloved, you are God's beloved, you're part of his creation. He created you in order to love you. Apart from anything that you have ever done or will ever do, God created you to love you. He has always loved you. When you were disappointing him and going against his will and his ways, and when you were in lockstep with his spirit and doing everything in accordance with his will and his ways, he loves you. And he doesn't just love you a little bit, or he doesn't just love you temporarily, or he doesn't just love you in some sort of a limited fashion. Jeremiah 31.3 says that I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you to myself with Loving kindness, that the love of God is not temporary, it is not fleeting, it is not whimsical, it doesn't come and go, it doesn't ebb and flow. It is constant, it is an everlasting love. God has always loved you and he will always love you from everlasting to everlasting. You have been the object of God's love. 
And then in the New Testament, John 3.16, some of the most famous words in all of Scripture, some of the most quoted, most memorized, most recited words in all of Scripture, Jesus stands before Nicodemus and he says to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Jesus is on a cosmic rescue mission for every single person in this world. And you are a part of the world that God so loved that he sent his son, that he sent his perfect sinless son to live a perfect sinless life and to die a death on the cross in order to pay the penalty for our sins. You are beloved by God and you are inherently worthy of his love because he created you. That's the first part of our bottom line today. That's the first part of what's true about you is that you are God's beloved. Next, we want to look at the second phrase, child of God, because, because something happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We become God's children. We become brothers and sisters with Jesus. And my favorite passage on this is John 1.12. Every one of these, there are multiple passages that I could share that I had to, to leave. I had to pick the ones that I thought said it the most succinctly. But John 1.12 outlines the process of going from being part of God's beloved creation to being one of God's beloved children. And we're told that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a progression that takes place. You receive, you believe, you become. You receive, you believe, you become. And to all who received him, that word receive means to lay hold of by accepting what is offered. It's not that it just falls into your lap. It's that you reach out and take it. Something's offered and you reach out and take it. And over and over in the Gospels, we hear the proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is something that is close enough for you to reach. That's what at hand means. Okay? So my water bottle is not at hand right now. Now my water bottle is at hand. I can reach out and take it. I can receive it. I can receive it. And to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, and it's really important that we understand that the word that we're translating as believe here is not just giving intellectual assent. It's not just agreeing in the facts about something. It's to rely upon, cling to, and trust in. It's the Greek word pistis. And it means to put your faith in and to put all your faith in. To not hold anything back. To rely upon, cling to, and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And so we receive, we take hold of, like a drowning man receiving a life preserver. And we put all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our trust, and we rely on that completely. Then we receive and we believe and we become. We become the children of God. We transition from one condition to another. That's what become literally means, to transition from one condition to another. Once you were no people, now you are God's people. Once you did not have love, now you do have love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so we have an opportunity to become, to transition from being God's beloved creation to being God's beloved children. And that word children, child, We become the children of God. The Greek word is technos. It means one living in willing dependence and glad submission. Willing 
dependence and glad submission. That's what a child is. That's why Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Don't, don't send the children away. Let them come. They're, they come with willing submission. I'm sorry, willing dependence and glad submission. That's the heart of a child. That's the heart of Carson when he's sitting on my lap down here while we're singing Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes the submission's not always glad with children, right? And sometimes it's not always glad for us. But the heart of a child before the Heavenly Father that comes in glad submission and willing dependence is the invitation that's been given to us. You are a beloved child of God. Beloved child of God. And that needs to become our identity. If we have received, if we have believed... If we have become children of God, then that becomes our identity. My identity is not first and foremost to be a pastor or to be a father or to be a husband or to be a son. My first and foremost identity is as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a child of God. That is my core identity. It's not what I do. It's not whose child I am. It's not whose father I am. It's that I am a child of God. And John, again, writing about this later in life, after he had experienced so much with Jesus and experienced so much after Jesus had gone up into heaven, he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is on page 1900, if you want to turn there. It's a little bit longer passage. He says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Skip it on to verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the first first verse talks about our identity as children of God and how great and how lavish the love of God is that the invitation even exists, that we even have the opportunity to become his children, to be lavishly loved by him. And then it goes on and it says that we're in process now and what we will become is not 100% clear, but we do see the image of Jesus Christ and we know that that is what we are moving to. And I love verse 3 because it talks about how when we have this hope, we purify ourselves. We purify ourselves just as he is pure. We get rid of the dross. We get rid of the chaff. We get rid of the impurities in our life. As, the, as John the baptizer said, I must decrease. He must increase. And that is the process of every Christ follower. That the parts of me that are not true, that are rooted in the ego, in the false identity, in the false self, in the flesh, in the sinful nature, all of those things start to diminish and start to fade away and be burned away. So that what's true about me, my relationship with God, what he says about me, can increase and can become stronger and more powerful in my life. Somewhat like metal. If you take a a chunk of iron ore, it's not worth a whole lot. And there's not a whole lot you can do with it. And anything you make out of it is going to rust and corrode and probably fall apart. But if you start to process that and you heat it up and you let the, the impurities get away from it and you... You refine it. Now you've got carbon steel, which is much stronger, and it is much more durable, and it doesn't rust the same way. And you can build tall skyscrapers out of carbon steel that you would never even think to build out of iron ore. But if you continue to refine it, and you continue to get the the impurities out of it, 
You can get it down to stainless steel, high-grade stainless steel that has been refined and purified by the fire. That's the trials and the difficulties of life that are meant to, to increase our dependence upon him and decrease our dependence upon ourselves. And as we continue to be refined and as we continue to, to decrease in ourselves and increase in what he has said is true about us, then the process for, from the metal standpoint would be, would be high-grade stainless steel that doesn't corrode, that doesn't rust, that doesn't get corrupted. It's very, very strong. It's very very durable. And that's his desire for us, that we would be purified in him, that we would draw closer to him, that we would become more and more who he says that we are. The next phrase that we're going to look on is in whom Christ dwells. I am a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells. And that idea of Christ dwelling within us is found throughout the New Testament, that when we come to Christ, we can resonate with the words that Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, one of my life verses, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That when we come to Christ, when we receive him, when we believe him, when we become a child of God, that Christ literally dwells within us. He dwells within us. That you are one in whom Christ dwells. And there's a process, again, that takes place where we are crucified, where our sinful nature, our false self, is crucified with Christ. And we die to our flesh, we die to our sinful nature, we die to our false selves so that Christ can live in us and we can live by faith in him. You want to read more about this? You can look at Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 5, 1 John chapter 2. Do a word study on this idea of Christ dwelling within us and being led by the Spirit and living by the Spirit of God which now inhabits us. The world is all around us and it screams at us, but God intersects our spirit with his spirit and literally takes up residence in our lives. This is a miracle. And it's true about you if you're in Christ. It's true about you. And finally, he delights. And I remember the day that I read Psalm 18, verse 19, and realized that God delighted in me. Apart from anything that I would ever do for him, I think I was messing it up pretty badly at the time. And I was reading my life application study Bible, and it just said these simple words, he delights in you too. See, David writes these words. He says, He reached down from on high and he took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. And just a side note, don't don't limit that to human enemies and human foes. He's fighting for us. He's fighting for us against our common enemy who is always trying to bring us down. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And he delights in you too. Because if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus dwelling within you. When he looks at you, he smiles. Because you are one in whom Christ dwells. And I have this image of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan when he went to John the Baptist and he went down into the water and we're told that in Scripture, as he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the, the Lord descended upon him like a dove. 
And a voice from heaven came saying, This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And he makes the same declaration over every blood-washed one. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. So let's bring it all together. You are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. Colossians 3, 3 through 4. I have a special love for the book of Colossians. I can't describe it other than I, I have this sense that God had me in mind when he wrote the book of Colossians in a special way. And maybe you have a passage of scripture or a book of scripture or a psalm or something that just resonates with you at a deep level. But there's a passage here in Colossians 3, 3 through 4 that I want to read to you from the Passion Translation. I would probably call it the Passion Paraphrase. Uh, the Passion Translation is one of the newer uh, paraphrase translations of scripture, and it's written from the perspective of God with his passionate love for each and every one of us. And so it's a lot like the message translation, if you're familiar with Eugene Peterson's The Message. I don't necessarily recommend them as a primary source text for all your study, but they are super, super helpful if you're reading a passage and you like to say, I wonder how that might be said today. They're very good at taking the modern language, the modern English, the modern uh, figures of speech and applying them to Scripture. And in the Passion Translation of Colossians 3, 3 through 4, it nails this whole thing we've been talking about. Your crucifixion with Christ has severed the tie to this life, and now your true life is hidden away in God, in Christ. And as Christ himself is seen for who he really is, who you really are will also be revealed. For you are now one with him. In his glory. Isn't that beautiful? That as Christ is seen for who he really is, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then who you really are will also be revealed. That there is something deep within you that is that imprint of God. And that when we surrender our lives to Christ, and when we hand our lives over to Christ, and when we volitionally choose to get ourselves out of the way and let Christ emerge and let Christ increase as we decrease the truth of who we are begins to emerge. Paul Young says it this way, you were a very good creation before anything got broken. God don't make no junk. Maybe you've seen that or heard that before. And there is a truth of your being that is beyond the damage, beyond the experiences, that is wrapped up in your uniqueness, which is founded in the truth of who you are. Once you know the truth of your being, the way of your being will come to match it. Wholeness. Wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about shalom, about the peace, the wholeness, the completeness, the perfection of God. Shalom is when the way of our being matches the truth of our being. When what's true about you manifests itself in every relationship and everything that you do and every thought that you think and every word that you speak. And so we've been talking about you a lot. And I hope that you understand that what's true about you, or could be, if you're still exploring Christ, what's true about you or what could be true about you is true about the you next to you. It's true about the person in your chair and the person next to you. 
And if we really start to get this and we really start to understand this, it will transform the way we think about people, the way we talk about people, the way we treat people. And we won't be able to apply blanket statements to huge numbers of people that are in conflict with this idea that they are God's beloved children in whom Christ can dwell and in delight. And so, if you know it, if you believe it, who do you know that needs to know what you know? As we go to a time of response, there's a number of different ways that you can respond. You can come down and you can pray. You can pray in the center ones and we will let you pray alone with God. If you want someone to pray with you, go to the outside ones, just as Zach explained earlier. You could pray that God would lay somebody on your heart, that God would make an introduction, that God would open a door for a conversation with somebody that needs to know what's true about them, that needs to know how God feels about them, that needs to know what you know. And maybe there's some new things here and you need to wrestle with this and you need to pray through this and you need to look up the scriptures again this week and look over them. You need to go back to the podcast on Monday or Tuesday and you need to listen to this again and and again and again. When I came to these truths that I'm going to be sharing with you over the next few weeks, I began writing them down at least once a day for a week, once a week for a year, and I still write them down. Every week I go through and I fill a page in my journal that writes out every one of these things so that they start to take root in my heart and in my soul. And I hope that you might do the same. So as we go to a time of prayer and as response, my prayer as always is that you will respond in faith to God. Whether this message is for you and you need to take hold of something that is true about you or whether this message is true about, is for someone who needs to know what's true about them, I pray that you'll respond in faith in these moments. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us too much to leave us alone, that you love us too much to, to leave us as we are, that you welcome us into your family, that you have made a way for each and every one of us. And I pray for the one who is here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, that if today, June 8th, 2018, is the day of their salvation, Lord, that nothing will hold them back from leaning into everything that you are, from relying upon, clinging to, and trusting in you and you alone, from praying that prayer that says, Lord, I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Will you come into my life? Will you wash me clean? And will you lead me into the future that you have ordained for me? For those of us who simply need to rest in who you are, help us to embrace the identity we have in you. And for those of us who need to share this with someone, God, open the door. Help us to be bold. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to see as you see so that we'll do as you say. It's in Jesus' name we pray.